When I was 14, I had one dream in life. I wanted desperately to be a pilot. I had seen Top Gun probably 10,000 times in my childhood, and I was convinced there was nothing cooler you could possibly do with your life than be a pilot. So being 14, hoping to be a pilot, I uh, went to an aviation camp after my freshman year of high school, and we built plane models there. We learned about aerodynamics. I got to uh, actually ride around in little Cessna airplanes, which are those kind of small airplanes you might kind of see at the, the McKinney Airport uh, and, and things like that. Uh, and one day, I got to do the coolest thing I have ever done in my entire life. That is not an exaggeration. This guy, he, sh- he showed up at the aviation camp, and he had his own open cockpit airplane that he had built himself, and he asked if we wanted to go for a ride. Uh, So obviously, I raised my hand, like, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity, I'm not letting this go by. There's only two seats on this thing. Uh, And if if you want a a picture of this uh, airplane, you'll have to come find me. I could show it to you. Uh, But it was about as open cockpit as an airplane can be. Uh, so I sat on this, this little seat, and I buckled a seatbelt. And if I was not buckled, I would have slid right off and fallen through the sky. This, if you're thinking open cockpit, and you're thinking like those World War I planes, right, where you kind of lower yourself into this like, little seat thing, uh, and there, but there's stuff around you. No, no, no. There was nothing around me. I was in a chair without any arms, and I had a seatbelt across my lap. And we took off and flew uh, up into the sky. Uh, we only went about uh, 1,800 feet in the air. Apparently, that's the, you can't go above 2,000 because we were near O'Hare Airport. Uh, but the reality is, at that point, uh, falling is going to be lethal no matter what. Right? You know, 1,500, 1,800, 2,000, whatever, uh, you don't want to fall, right? Uh, and about halfway into this flight, the pilot, who was in this seat in front of me, he leaned back. He pointed at this like, joystick, I guess you call it, which, which was between my legs. And, and he said, you fly for a bit. So even though I was not yet legal to drive a car, I flew the plane. Uh, and I, I, was, I was very aware, of course, of the threat of imminent death. So I didn't do any barrel rolls or anything fun like that. But uh, the easiest way to describe it, very simply, is it was like a roller coaster that I could control. It was the coolest thing I have ever done in my entire life. Now, fortunately, for my own safety, that part lasted about 30 seconds, and the pilot took back controls. I managed to survive, and and he took back the plane, and and everything was, was fine. But I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine he hadn't taken back the controls. I want you to imagine he just jumped out, you know, popped a parachute, and I was left to land that thing all by myself. Uh, That very clearly would have gone very, very, very poorly. I would not be standing here in front of you today. And I tell that story because in our passage that we're going to look at this morning, we will see what happens when Jesus leaves and gives the controls to his disciples for a bit. 
And spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. Just like if I was you know, left flying that airplane without that pilot. So here we find just how ineffectual, how, how much trouble Jesus' disciples are in without him. But by God's grace, we will see, just like for me on that airplane, how it was the most incredible experience of my life because the pilot was in control. By God's grace, we will also see this morning how unimaginably blessed we are when Jesus is with us. That's true for us, the Parkway Church, and it's a particularly helpful reminder on this Sunday, as Jared shared in announcements, we're going through some transition in the life of our church. And it's in, in seasons like this where change is happening that it's particularly appropriate to remind ourselves what the most important things are, and we get the chance to reflect on that today. So our passage comes from Matthew chapter 17. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've kind of seen this thematic shift take place in Matthew's gospel. So there was this long section where, you know, Jesus had all these debates with the religious leaders. They're going back and forth. Uh, And now we're we're kind of, we've transitioned recently into a section that focuses on Jesus's disciples. And and last week, Jared preached this very famous story of the transfiguration, right, where Jesus took three of his disciples up on a mountain. They, They saw his glory. The, the curtain of reality was pulled back and they saw Jesus as he really is, the majestic son of God, the second person of the Trinity, this, this glorious Messiah. They, they got to actually see it with their eyes. And now we come crashing back down to earth and we see how poorly things went with his other disciples in his absence. So we're going to break this passage today into two headings, two sections, because it shows us two things. Now, first, we'll look at ministry without Jesus. Then second, we'll look at ministry with Jesus. First, what's it look like without the pilot flying the plane? And then second, what's it look like with him at the controls? So let's, let's go ahead and let's dive in. Verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So here we have a a pretty familiar scene. Someone comes up to Jesus with a a crisis situation. Now, in in this case, it's a, a father whose son is having seizures and it's, it's so sad. The, the seizures are so violent. This poor kid is regularly getting burned or nearly drowning. I mean, just, just imagine, imagine this life. You, you have to avoid stairs. You, you can't go near rivers. You can't, you, know, you can't go on the, the water's edge. You have to stay away from fireplaces because if the, if the seizure hits at the wrong moment, it could be life or death. It's an urgent situation. You can, you can feel the father's anxiety here, his, his fear. His, you know, my boy is suffering. I'm, I'm worried it's going to kill him. And actually, as we'll find out a little later in this passage, the, the, the problem is worse than the father even realizes. So Jesus doesn't just heal this boy from the seizures. 
Jesus cast out a demon. There's a spiritual oppression going on here as well. But, you know, we've been in Matthew's gospel for quite some time now, and let's be honest, we've seen this before. We've seen a crisis situation brought to Jesus, and he deals with it, right? This is the kind of thing that happens all the time. Well, what's different? What's, what's unique about this particular episode? Verse 16, the man tells Jesus, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So here's what's happened while Jesus was on the mountain, the transfiguration, right, with his three of his disciples, his his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They're up there with him. And the other nine, you know, probably sad because they, you know, missed out on the cool kids club, didn't go on the mountain, didn't have a fun hike. They're hanging out with the crowds. And this father showed up and said, you know, you're Jesus' disciples. I I need you. Look, my my boy, he's an epileptic. Can Can you help him? And, you know, they are Jesus' disciples, so they did their best, which was not very good at all, because it didn't work. Nothing changed. Uh, So fun fact about me, my life, uh, my wife is a doctor, and my mom is also a doctor. So I've I've spent a, a good portion of my life pretending that I know things about medicine, right? So, so growing up, when, when someone, you know, got hurt, I, you know, don't worry, everyone, I'm, I'm here. I can save the day. My mom is a doctor. Uh, and of course, you know, later in life, to keep up that false uh, pretense, I had to marry a doctor. Uh, I, I, I can pretend, and I've hung around physicians, medical people enough, I can pretend that I know what I'm doing, uh, but in reality, to quote Michael Scott, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. That's, that's the disciples right here, right? They're, they're trying, but they're just making it up. They have no idea how to handle this. But one thing that's actually important to remember is they're not wrong for trying. Right? So this is not quite like me pretending to be a doctor, pretending to know things about medicine, because Jesus actually told them to do the very thing they're trying to do. So look at, look at Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, this is where he, he's, he's sending out his disciples, and he says to them, you know, he gives them a mission. While they're serving as his disciples, he says this, verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, right? He he sent them on a mission, and the two things they're trying to do right here in this passage, heal a sick kid, cast out a demon, are both in their job description. So yes, they're failing, but they're failing while trying to do the very thing they've been commanded to do. This passage is about God's people doing the work God called them to. The problem is they can't do it. They can't do it. And so Jesus rebukes them. Verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
So he, Jesus, he, he gives this rebuke to his disciples, and then he asks two really important questions. We'll, we'll start with the rebuke. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Now, uh, this is another thing, actually, that should be familiar. If you've been with us in our walk through Matthew, this is actually the sixth time Jesus has been critical of the, the wicked or the twisted generation in Matthew's Gospels. The sixth time he's used that kind of language. We saw it in chapter 11. We saw it actually three times in chapter 12. We saw it at the beginning of chapter 16. So this is, this is familiar. But here's what's different about this time. Every other instance, every other time Jesus has used that language, he's been talking to either the crowds or the religious leaders, right? So it's, it's the Pharisees, right? We, we know that. The, the Pharisees are, you know, a corrupt, wicked, twisted generation. The crowds who don't like Jesus. Yes, of course, that, that figures. We know that. Of course, they're a wicked generation. But this time, Jesus isn't talking about the Pharisees or the crowds. This time, he's talking about his own disciples. They too are part of the faithless and twisted generation. In fact, if you remember, you know, Jared pointed out last week the, the similarities between the transfiguration and the exodus. When Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, he asks to see God's glory. Well, what happened when Moses came down off the mountain? What were the people doing? They were worshiping the golden calf. They were committing the same sins as the generation around them, just like the disciples do here, which is a reminder to us, church, that we too are prone to the sins of our own age. In the church, we'd love to think, you know, we've got this all figured out. We're not like them out there. Us in here, we get it. We're above all that. We would love to believe we are not products of our own generation. But if Israel in the Old Testament and the disciples in the New Testament were both prone to the sins of their own age, so are we. So are we. The, the truth is, brothers and sisters, that you and I are far more influenced by our culture and our time than we would like to admit. So, so what, do we, what do we do about that? How, how do we respond to that reality? Well, for one thing, when you get frustrated with the problems you see out there, the first thing you should do is not complain about how messed up they are. The first thing you should do is ask, how do those same problems manifest themselves in my own heart? Where do I need to repent? In, in, instead of, you know, I, I hate the self-centeredness of our society, ask, where is there self-centeredness in me? How am I a product of my own age? And that's not just true of our frustrations, it's true of our joys, too. 
when you're excited or, or happy with what you see out there, ask yourself, is this joy godly? Is this a reflection of the righteousness of Christ or is it the fact that I'm just living as a citizen of this world and not as a citizen of the one to come? Jesus is clear. We are not immune to the sins of our own time. So that's his rebuke. And then he asks his disciples two questions. He says, how long am I to be with you and how long am I to bear with you? And there's, there's two ways we could read those questions. You know, first, we could you know, just take them as mere frustration. You know, Jesus is saying, you know, I can't wait to be rid of you guys. Father, can I please just ascend into heaven? These people are exhausting me. I'm done with them. And while he is rebuking them, I, I don't think frustration is the tone we should hear. I, I don't think Jesus is, is expressing frustration. I think his questions here are meant to generate anticipation. He's inviting his disciples to, to think about this problem, this reality. He, he's asking them, how long do you think I'll be here? How long will I be able to just walk down a mountain and, and save the day? He, he needs them to start looking ahead to the future because he won't be here like this forever. He rebukes them for their lack of faith because faith is going to be the most essential element of their ministry ahead. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit because Jesus picks up on that point later. But by way of summary, the, the, the point of this first section is, is so simple. Ministry without Jesus is powerless. It's powerless. I, I, I have a better chance of, of landing that airplane or, or practicing medicine because apart from Christ, the people of God completely lack the ability to do what Christ commands. We fool ourselves if we think that we can do this, that our power, our ideas, our strategizing, our resources is what we need to accomplish our work as a church. We're blind if we think we can accomplish the objectives Jesus gives us without Jesus. The truth is, we could have the biggest brains. We could have the smoothest preacher. We could have all the flashing lights and worldly glamour we could ever desire. But if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. Nothing we build will ever last. We are powerless to do the job that he put us here for. But what if we do have him? What if we do have Jesus? Well, that's the second thing we see in this passage. Verse 18, Jesus shows up and he does the work. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Right, so this is interesting. This is the last time Jesus will cast out a demon in Matthew's gospel. And just with every other time we've seen, Jesus is powerful. Right? That's so clear. And we, there's three, three ways we see just how powerful he is in this one verse. First, man, this is easy. It's easy. This isn't a fair fight. 
Jesus just says something, the demon is gone. He, you know, Jesus doesn't even roll up his sleeves like he's about to go to work, right? It's like Lionel Messi going against a bunch of kindergartners, right? It's, it's just not fair. Second, it's not just easy. We see Jesus' power is shown not just in the fact that it's just, it requires no effort, but in the simple fact that it's also effective. Remember, this dad thought it was just epilepsy. Right, that his son had seizures, and he did. But the father didn't realize he was dealing with the spiritual forces of darkness. There's a demon here. Now, I, I did a little research this week, because uh, sometimes I like to pretend to be a doctor. And uh, I found out the best epilepsy drugs we have are effective on 7 out of 10 people, which which sounds pretty good, 70% effectiveness for the, against epilepsy is the best, best medications we have. But in my theological opinion, those same medications are effective on zero out of 10 demons. The problem is worse than they thought. But Jesus rebukes the demon, and it comes out. It's effective. It's easy. Third and finally, it's immediate. We see Jesus' power and the fact that it's immediate. The boy was healed instantly. There's no process here. There's no, you know, come back in a week to see if you're better. No, no, no. Jesus healed him right away because that's what Jesus can do. He has power over disease, power over darkness, power over everything, because there's nothing he can't do. So the disciples' question, verse 19, is, is almost just the wrong question. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, why could we not cast it out? Why can't they cast it out? The answer should be obvious. Because they can't cast it out. Jesus can. It's not them who's powerful. It's Christ. We, we just saw this, right? They don't have the power to do what Jesus commands from them. That's why they can't do it. Only Jesus has that power. So the right question, the question they should have asked, is how do we get Jesus they can't do his work without him. And he's just shown them that. And he's told them he won't be with them forever. So what they need to know, what we need to know, is how to have Jesus with us when he's not with us. When Jesus isn't here, how do we do the work Jesus has called us to? When Jesus answers that question, verse 20, he says, is why you couldn't do it, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is very clear. What do they need? They need faith. Faith in Jesus is how you get Jesus when he's not with you. Faith is the solution. Now, unfortunately, uh, in our 
own world today, faith is a, a really watered-down concept. Now, we have all kinds of, of misunderstandings of faith today. Uh, for, for one, we, we tend to think of faith as just kind of a, a vague hopefulness. Uh, you know, have faith, things will work out. Uh, and for another, we tend to think that, that what matters is the amount of your faith, like the, the quantity. You have to believe hard enough. Like faith is the, the gas you put in the tank, right? You, you need to have enough of it, of this you know, generic optimism, and then you'll get where you need to go, which is, of course, nothing like the faith Jesus talks about here. When he says, have faith, he's not saying believe harder or put more faith in your gas tank. And we know that for for two reasons. First of all, back in verse 17, he called them faithless. So it's really the absence of any faith whatsoever that's the problem. The faith they have is not faith. But second, the very next thing he does is he compares the faith that they need to a tiny little mustard seed. Mustard seeds are about one millimeter in diameter. So the point is very clearly not about quantity, but quality. They need to have the right kind of faith. A a, a vague optimism isn't the kind of faith they're missing. In fact, fact they they tried, or sorry, I should say that the, the fact that they tried shows us they probably had some expectation, some hopefulness, this might actually work. We might be able to cast out this demon. But Jesus says, if they had the right kind of faith, even as small as a mustard seed, and some pretty amazing things can happen. Now, you might remember Jesus already told a parable back in Matthew 13, where he compares the kingdom of heaven to a a mustard seed. And the point there, as it is here, is that The faith they need may look small and and weak and insignificant, but no matter what you think it looks like, it has remarkable power. And Jesus says some radical things about what real faith can do. For example, he says it has the capacity to relocate mountains, which is crazy. It's so crazy, actually, that we usually take this as a metaphor, right? So Excuse me. Uh, mountains we think are are you know challenges or, or hardships, right? It's, it's a it's that's what that's what Jesus is really talking about is what we think, right? And I mean certainly that this applies to those metaphorical situations, but I want you to notice, church. He says this mountain, this mountain. He's he's just come down a literal mountain where the transfiguration took place, and he's pointing to it. Hey, that mountain right there. Why, why does it matter? <coughs> why does it matter that he's talking about a real mountain? Well, I think the point is he's saying to his people the power that formed that mountain, the hands that raised it from the plain, the cosmic world-shaping power of the creator of the universe is available to you through faith. The power that can raise a mountain is what you have when you have real faith. Now, Jesus, we'll talk about in a second, is going to, at the end of this book, Matthew 28, give his disciples a world-shaping 
mission. And to do that, they need a world-shaping power through their world-shaping God. And through faith in him, they have it. Now, see, don't misunderstand what Jesus is promising here, right? So especially this next line, right, where he says, (coughs) nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I know that sounds like the Adidas slogan, right? Impossible is nothing. But Jesus is not talking about winning football games. He's not talking about achieving your financial dreams. That's not the power he's talking about. He's definitely not talking about having, like, spiritual superpowers, right? This passage, as we've already said, is about the people of God doing the work God commanded them to do. Don't make this about something it's not. But we have two pictures here. We see ministry without Jesus, and we see ministry with Jesus. And Jesus himself makes it clear the most indispensable element to do the work of Jesus is faith in Jesus. (coughs) What does the Parkway Church need more than anything? It's not money. It's not spiritual superpowers. It's not, you know, inspiring preaching. It's not a building that never floods. It's not even visible success. What we, church, need more than the very breath in our lungs is faith in Jesus. Now, look, look at this. Over, over in John chapter 15, this is the last night of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. He knows he's about to leave his disciples and he needs to give them, he needs to equip them, give them the tools they need for his departure to do his work in his absence. And he makes one thing very, very clear. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Listen to this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We've seen that this morning. That's what happened when the disciples tried to do the work without him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But here in Matthew 17, we see that with him, nothing is impossible. We can experience persecution and slander and nothing is impossible. We can go through pain and division and nothing is impossible. We can be weak and broken in the eyes of the world, church, and with Jesus, nothing is impossible because as long as we have him, nothing's impossible. (coughs) Here's, church, here's what we need to realize as a, a body together and in our own individual lives. If our faith is in Jesus, Jesus is with us. And we have everything we need. Matthew 28, right? He he gives his disciples their marching orders. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's quite a job. That's That's pretty big work, boys. And remember, these are the same bumbling fools who we've seen misunderstand Jesus in every other conversation. 
the ones who tried to cast out a demon and fell flat on their faces, they're the ones Jesus gives the task of reaching the entire world with the gospel. How are they going to do that? Jesus tells them how. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. If we have Jesus, we have everything we need. I remember a a few years back, I I was watching a show on the History Channel uh, that was talking about the spread of Christianity in the first century. That's a a difficult historical question. How how did this tiny little religious sect that kind of sprang out of Judaism, how did it go from obscurity in some backwater Roman province to blanketing the entire Roman Empire, eventually supplanting the pagan Roman faith as the religion of the empire? How did that happen? And the answer the show gave was simple. Well, the Roman system of roads was really elaborate and well-constructed, so it was easy for people to travel and for a new religion to spread. Which sounds reasonable, until you think about it for like two seconds. Wait, wait, wait a minute. There's this there's new religion about a, a Jewish guy, and by the way, no one likes the Jews, from a, in the Roman Empire, There's a new religion about a Jewish guy from a small town who was executed on a cross and then pretty much all of his disciples were also executed because they claimed that he rose from the dead because he's the son of God and is right now standing before the throne of God awaiting the day when he will return in glory and judge the whole world in righteousness and bring into existence an entire new creation. That message spread like wildfire. Because the roads were good? And besides, people only like new ideologies when they can incorporate them into what they already believe. That's what the Romans did for centuries. They just kept adding gods to the pantheon. They'd conquer people. Oh, cool, we'll worship your gods too. The more, the merrier. But then this Jesus religion shows up and says, no, 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 no. Actually, you have to get rid of all of that. You get one God. You get one Lord, and he died on a cross. And on top of that, you're going to have to lay down your life for this Jesus. He doesn't just demand some sacrifices or worship here and there. He demands everything. He must be your all, more important than family, more essential than food, more precious than your own life, and you're going to put your own, need to put your own sin to death and walk in holiness. That message blanketed the world Because the Romans built good roads? No. The only rational explanation is that there was a power behind that gospel message that could not be stopped. The kind of power that stilled a storm with a word. The power that healed with a touch. The kind of power that moves mountains. A power for which nothing is impossible. And only that kind of divine, world-shaping power can explain how 2,000 years later, the Parkway Church in McKinney, Texas, is preaching that same message today. And only that power, church, only that power will sustain us and bless our work in the years to come. 
Ministry without Jesus is hopeless, but ministry with Jesus, well, nothing is impossible. But that's not where our passage ends because there's one more thing our Lord needs us to know. <clears throat> yes, he will be with us. We will have all we need. Ministry with Jesus is indeed powerful, but that doesn't mean there won't be suffering. Uh, now, very briefly, before we get into that, we do need to do a, a quick aside here. Uh, astute observers, if you're looking at your Bible, you may have noticed uh, in Matthew chapter 17, there is no verse 21. Uh, so I need to take a second and just explain why that is. Why does the passage just jump from verse 20 to verse 22? Uh, the answer involves the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So in 1557, William Tyndale did the very first English translation, translation that had verse numbers. So verse numbers were not, you know, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he didn't write verse one, you know, blah, blah, blah. Verse two, uh, this is what it says, right? Uh, this is something we've added later. William Tyndale did the first one in the 1500s, the first one uh, with verse numbers in English. Uh, and he was translating from 12th century manuscripts because that's the best they had. That's actually what the original uh, King James Version is, is based off of. But now, today, we have manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament that go all the way back to the second century. So 1,000 years before the manuscripts that Tyndale had for his translation. And through the process of, of transmission in the thousand years in between, some changes were made. Now, now, most of those changes are scribal error, things that happened on accident. Uh, and the translators of the ESV have, have looked at the manuscript evidence and they've said, Matthew 17, verse 21, doesn't appear to be original. Right? The evidence shows it was added later. So instead of just removing it and, and shifting all the verses up, uh, they have decided to just pop it out so that there's not just this chaos, right? Because the, the KJV probably, I don't know about the NKJV, but the original KJV definitely had Matthew 7, verse 17, verse 21. And if you're using that and I'm using the ESV, all the rest of the re verse references in the chapter would be off by one. So it's just easier for them if they just remove verse 21 and, and put a footnote at the bottom. Now, on the manuscript tradition, very quickly, two things I want to say to make sure you're not worried, church, about differences between New Testament manuscripts. One, not a single one of the differences that exist between New Testament manuscripts, between the, the ones that are clearly authoritative, early manuscripts, and things like that, not a single one of the differences that exist affects any of our doctrinal beliefs. So it's not the case that there's some manuscripts that say, you know, Jesus didn't really die. He was just pretending. No, no, no. None of our theology rests on a, a discrepancy in the manuscript tradition. That's the first thing. Second, uh, this discrepancy, Matthew 17, 21, is actually the only one in the whole New Testament that could affect our Christian practice. And even then, it, I mean, barely. So you'll, I'll explain what I mean. So if you look at the footnote, if you have a Bible in front of you, it says, you know, verse 21 this kind, meaning this kind of demon, <coughs> this kind of demon never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Uh, now, in Mark, Jesus does say something similar. He says this kind only comes out by prayer. So Jesus did say something along these lines. 
Mark recorded it. Matthew didn't, which is probably why the scribes made the mistake. They had Mark in their heads, and they wrote it without thinking. But that, that very last two words is the, the unique part here, prayer and fasting. So this would be the only verse that would say uh, an important part of our Christian practice. If you want to exercise a demon, you need to fast. Are we supposed to pray and fast in order to exercise a demon? Well, as I said, verse 21 is not in the earliest and best manuscripts, so it, it does not seem that we should lend it authority. But also, I mean, <laughs> frankly, just as a matter of practicality, it seems difficult to fast in the moment you're confronted with a demon. I mean, what are you supposed to say? You know, excuse me, Mr. Demon, could you come back later? I need to take a few, few hours or a day or whatever to not eat, and then I can deal with you. Right? It, it just doesn't seem to fit. Uh, and that is the only example in the New Testament that would affect Christian practice. So that's the explanation on verse 21. If you have questions, you can email me or you can get coffee. I have books I can recommend, things like that. Uh, I'll just say the more you know about the New Testament manuscript tradition, the more confidence you will have that the Bible really is true. I find it incredibly encouraging uh, to my faith. So uh, if you're interested in resources uh, to that end, uh, just reach out. I'd be happy to, happy to send them to you. All right, so that's the aside. Back to Jesus here. So after this claim about the power of faith, that, that nothing will be impossible, Jesus foretells his death for a second time. Verse 22 as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So looking ahead to his death and resurrection, Jesus foretells three things. One, he will be delivered into the hands of men. Two, those men will kill him. And three, he will be raised. Now, we know this story, right? We know that this is where the life of Jesus is heading. But I want you to see something very clearly in this passage, church. Who's in control of it? Who's in control? Right? I want you to look at this. The, the first and the third things he says are, are what's called the, the passive voice. Be delivered. Be raised. Those are uh, in, uh, in uh, Greek you know, grammatical terms, those are called divine passives. The, the point is, God is the one who does it. Jesus is, is bookending this prophecy about his own death by saying God's in control of all of it from start to finish. It's God at work. Even, frankly, the fact that he even, you know, prophesies this, foretells it, proves that. He knows it's coming. He knows exactly how it's going to happen. Because God is in control. And so what do the disciples do? Verse 23, they were very grieved. They want the mountain-moving power of Jesus, but they cannot see it in his weakness and suffering. So they don't understand. And they miss the fact that God's power is at work just as much in suffering as it is in strength. That his purposes involve not just obvious prosperity, but pain too. In fact, throughout the whole Bible, we see that's how he prefers to work. 
Because that's what tears our eyes off of our own abilities, our own sufficiencies, and that's what casts our eyes onto him. So when Israel was in danger from their enemies in the Old Testament, God said, don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't hope in their horses and chariots. Trust in me. With these disciples, Jesus let them fail so they can see that it's him they need. And for the Parkway Church today, the same is true. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Brothers and sisters, God's surpassing power is there in our weakness. And we can be sure of that because his power was there in Christ's weakness. What was Jesus doing as he hung on the cross? Well, he was suffering. He was Weak. He looked defeated for all the world to see. But in the purposes of God, he was conquering. Sin was being paid for. Satan was being crushed. Life was being born through death, glory through suffering. We, we met a father at the beginning of this passage who, who begged for his son to be delivered, and he was But at the cross, the Father delivered his own Son over to die so that we can live. It was not invisible power and strength. It was in weakness. Christ's weakness was our greatest good. And if that's true, Parkway Church, if that's true, what might God do through our weakness. Let's pray.